This is the Video Junkyard Podcast. A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. From this nightmare world emerges a fearsome half-man, half-ape with the strength of 20 demons. And welcome back to another exciting episode of the Video Junkyard Podcast. I'm Joe Peterson, and with me as always, my very good friend and co-host, Eric O'Branson. Eric, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> another Video Junkyard Podcast. It's, uh... Yeah. <laughs> no, it's episode been... 149 tonight. Is this 149? So, yeah. Summer. Got a big milestone next week, so... I think we're going to celebrate it with a milestone. We are, yeah, yeah. That'll be good. <laughs> That'll be good. Uh, beautiful weather. So, Got to the old man weather report. Beautiful weather oh, yeah. this weekend. Holy shit. Yeah, we enjoyed it. We were out. I helped uh, my brother-in-law put together a um, playset for his kid. So if you've never built one of those, it is a project. Those big wooden so, ones. So, Yeah. Yeah, like like kind of like the one we had. In, not that anyone yeah. out there listening is gonna know, but Joe's gonna know uh, that I had in my backyard growing up. Similar, but it, even even more like intricate. It has like a roof, and I don't know. We didn't even get halfway through. I don't think it. He he was it did like a fifteen hour day, and then, um, yeah, his. Uh, I think he was out there all day yesterday doing it and even some today so they're still working on getting it finished up but no those kind man. of things you you buy like the hardware and the plans but you got to buy the lumber and everything and cut it yourself right uh it was all pre-cut and pre-drilled but it was pretty it's pretty much like a giant like you know anything you buy like you buy a piece of furniture from ikea or whatever mm-hmm. and you know it comes with like an instruction book and step by step you kind of got to put it together this is like that only on like you know the large you know, degree to the like nth degree. There's like the booklet I think had like 290 some steps, and there were just you know pieces down to like it was it was it was a bunch of boards and screws and brackets and yeah, and you got to put it together. Get out your electric screwdrivers and <laughs> wow, um, yeah, it's a it's a project. I really hope I can. Uh, you know, avoid having to build one of those for my kids. But <laughs> now that they've I, I, seen that that's a thing we can do, I'm a little afraid. I'm I'm rocking. My kids are rocking the metal swing set. Yeah, yeah. with only one working swing, the other one broke, and I still need to replace it. Um, but it's got the you know when they swing on it, the entire thing like tries to pull out of the ground, back and mm. forth. The the yep. rust the rust death traps. Yeah, they're having fun with that still. <laughs> but. yeah we have one my parents got us a big it's like a big multi-kid swing and actually it, it could hold like quite a bit of weight so like I, I can get on it and swing with them too but um but it's like a big it's got like four post legs and it's got like a big swing that goes spins around and can swing back and forth in the middle and it's got a pad and a little tent thing you can put up around it it's cool but that's the only thing we have for like outdoor that's nice though but yeah, 
So I've been I've been, been enjoying that. Leaning towards getting the kids a new sandbox. The problem is the sandbox they have now. It's small, but they keep filling it with leaves and you know grass and shit like that. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, then we like, have a oh. sandbox that's like. 50% sand, 50% dirt from the garden. It's like, oh, guys. <laughs> yeah, and then they pour water in it, which I get yeah. frustrated. Then I realize I used to do that all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Flood the sandbox. <laughs> There's a sandbox somewhere in Pecatonica, Illinois, with one of my neighbor's Star Wars figures buried at the bottom of it. <laughs> because he bar- he lent he lent them to me, and I was like, oh, we'll play in the sandbox. It'll be like Tatooine. But what if Tatooine had a rainstorm because little Joe didn't understand what desert environments were like? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Better watch out. You're going to get some YouTube comments. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. I have to watch what I say on any kind of social media or else the the angry YouTubers will will come after me. Rain in the desert? (laughs) This guy clearly knows nothing of ecology. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that happened. I was telling Eric about that earlier that that happened some wacko decided to chew me out because he caught an error in one of my youtube course lecture videos <laughs> that wasn't even for him it was for my class but he had to he had to let me know he will not be ignored i'm like okay yes you're right i'm wrong yeah <laughs> love the modern world that's like I mean, I guess these people were always around they were probably writing angry letters to the editor back in the day kind of thing but yeah. It takes a lot more effort, I feel like, so you do weed out some of the more lazy assholes. Like yeah. Oh, it's so much easier to be the old man yelling at Cloud nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. But, but you know, that's actually not a bad segue, which I know we're always seeking for yeah. the good segue. There you is go. Because like the last week we watched two episodes of Masters of Horror from season one. And this week we're to do two from season two, and the ones that we chose are really quite uh, quite poignant with social commentary. And this isn't to say that there weren't any episodes from Season 1 that played social commentary. In fact, Season 1 of Masters of Horror has a very uh, clever and very tongue-in-cheek episode called Homecoming, which mm-hmm. was directed by Joe Dante, which is about soldiers from the uh, Iraq War coming back from the dead to vote. Yep. And it, it's... Uh, very even, good political satire piece. It, it, it is, and even season two has the wash the the Washingtonians, which is another fun mm-hmm. one. Uh, yeah. you know, kind of zombie founding fathers. But these two really touch on something. And yeah, Eric, when you texted me earlier in the week after you watched rewatched these two and said, "Fuck, <laughs> fuck, these episodes yeah. are scarier now than before." I have. To I really totally feel like agree. these have aged as well. The right word, but they've aged into themselves. Like. I don't know. And maybe I've aged and the world's aged and there's been this like decade of like garbage going on in politics and the, you know, tensions are up everywhere. And, um, you know, you had the Trump presidency and pandemic and like after living through all of this stuff, these things are much more effective. And and I think that maybe explains why we kind of gravitated towards the two most political episodes of I, I would say these two are the most politically um and and you're right. Homecoming's very political, but it's it's a satire. It's it, it end game is comedy there. Yeah. Um, Washingtonians is kind of in the same vein. These two are kind of deadly serious and uh, terrifying, and but they are still they're very political pieces, and I think they're probably the most poignant political 
episodes of Masters of Horror across the board. So for some reason, even though I don't think we did it intentionally, those are the ones that resonated that we picked and remembered out of these seasons. So they did something right, I suppose. Well, you know, I we, we've talked about this before. When you're dealing with horror, or just looking at horror as a genre, one of the things that is, and I'm saying all horror has to have this, but some of the best horror content um, deals with what's going on in the world at the time. What are the fears of the world at the time? You know, I, I go back to, um, you know, slasher films in the 80s during the latchkey era. Uh, you have during during the, the radioactive panic of the 1950s and 60s, you have movies like Them and Godzilla. Um, yeah, giant radioactive monsters. I- exactly. So you've got these these things that rhyme, you know, I think. Horror rhymes with, with culture. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you've got you've got myth um, about you know myth and fear and, and that works its way into your into your legends and, and tales and I think these two it, what's scary about these two I think today is these aired in what two thousand seven and yeah, around right. around then and now here we are in twenty twenty one and two thousand six uh, yeah okay 2006. so oh, 2006. and now here we are in twenty twenty one. And these are more poignant to be horror. Like if these were made today, they would exactly how they were. They'd be scarier than mm-hmm. they were then. So that is something I think equal or more disturbing about these. So yeah, the, I, think, I think the foresight from the filmmakers involved in putting these 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 two shorts together. Just they're obviously people, and I I know from knowing things about them as filmmakers. Uh, that they they are very you know politically active and conscious people, but to be able to kind of like look at the world in two thousand and six when you're making this film and see the problems that are you know going to become these these hot button issues years down the road, mm-hmm. um, and now that these weren't issues then, I just feel like this felt edgy at the time, and now it's still very disturbing, but it feels like a, a conversation we're already having. Yeah. Um, both of these pieces do. And it's, I think at the time it seemed like something that was a little more far-fetched or a little more outside of the realm of, of reality. And then then you realize after living through the past decade or so, like, oh, no, hang on. No, it's not at all. This is like, you know, this is something I kind of expect walking out of my house in the morning, which is terrifying. So, yeah. So the first episode that we're going to be watching, um, this was my pick, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is actually uh, another John Carpenter short. Last week we covered John Carpenter's Cigarette Burn. So we're going to see how he did in Season 2 with Masters of Horror, Season 2, Episode 5, Pro-Life. Baby. 
Um, and this one... So, yeah, directed by John Carpenter and starring Caitlin Walks, Ron Perlman, um, Derek Mears. Uh, this, it's, it's a, short, it's a small cast. Yeah. yeah, and it's... Uh, yeah, this one was a lot harder to sit through than I remember the previous one being. Um, Caitlin Walks plays a young girl named Angelique who is about 15 years old who mm-hmm. stumbles her way and ultimately ends up at an abortion clinic asking them to abort the thing inside of her. Uh, and her father is a gun-toting fundamentalist played by Ron Perlman who already has a restraining order against him from the premises. So he's one of those anti-abortion activist violent people yeah, um, who's obviously made a, a handful of violent threats before enough to have a restraining order right and yeah this one i i had a couple <laughs> of notes here but what are you what are your thoughts on the basic story setup though i mean last week and i bring this up because last week we talked about how cigarette burns is a pretty decent story but it just didn't feel carpenter yeah what about this one? Yeah, Cigarette Burns was a little different. And Carpenter does different things, obviously. He's not a one-note filmmaker. Um, but like we, I think we pointed out about Cigarette Burns, it's the, really the only piece of work that I can put you know, with his, in his feature film library that I would put Cigarette Burns next to as like a partner or a sister film would be in the mouth of madness. And I don't even feel like it lives up to that be, uh, quite. But um, this, I think, is much more... It's much more John Carpenter in the way the story is told, in the subject matter of the story, and um, the frantic pacing, and um, it's got a lot of the, that stuff about it. I still don't think it looks a whole lot like a Carpenter movie, and that just might be who they're working with, the, the film crew or the camera crew or whatever, and it not... Um, does give us a chance to kind of bring up, like, we were kind of talking about classic Carpenter and what is it that, you know, is missing from the, some of his later stuff. And, and, uh, I think it might be the cinematographers he worked with, especially Dean Coonty, who he worked with early in the, and that kind of came through a Jurassic Park discussion we were having that that kind of like light bulb went off in my head that maybe Dean, uh, Coonty has a lot to do with, uh, what I, what I visually perceive as something looking like a Carpenter movie, but anyway, um, but yeah, this felt a little more like in the ballpark. This felt a little more like a John Carpenter movie. And and really the a lot of it is the the pacing and setup. It reminds me a lot if you've seen an early film of Carpenter's called Assault on Precinct 13. Um it's got that kind of Rio Bravo uh you know, trapped in a <laughs> trapped in a location and the threat coming in from the outside type um setup, it rem- the the pace of it, uh the Escalation uh, reminds me a lot of Assault on Precinct 13. Obviously, Assault on Precinct 13 doesn't have demon babies and, and stuff like that that we get to later in the film. But it, it, it certainly, yeah, I, I think this this fits a little more in his wheelhouse than I feel like Cigarette Burns did. And I feel like his fingerprints are on this a little more. Um, the funny thing is, is I didn't care for this one much when I first saw it in 06. And I liked cigarette burns a lot, so I feel like I flip flopped for some reason. It could just be, like I said, like these are becoming the, the especially like pro life is just so much more. I don't know if it's more relevant, I think it was always relevant, but it, I'm, I'm much more aware of this situation or just the kind of the world's become more aware of this debate, and this is something that's like on the forefront of politics and. 
it probably was an 06, but I don't think I was there. Maybe a maturity issue or like whatever, but <laughs> um, yeah. So this just worked for me much better in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I actually found this one held my attention uh, a little bit more than Cigarette Burns did, and I think I'd seen that one more. Um, and this one's got, so of course, Ron Perlman, who is a great actor, great American actor. Um, but this one, I don't know, there was something about it where I, I know I've seen him better in things. He felt a bit stilted in this, like he wasn't free to really go as far as he could with the character. Oh, really? Did you, did you notice that? Like, I thought he was no, good in I this, but I'm he like, was ah, he could be better. Incredible in this. Like, I thought I was... I think he kind of made this the scary thing it is, because he, oh, totally. to me, Dwayne Bursell, his character, is... I don't want to say personified. That's not the right word, because obviously right-wing extremists are people. But he's like your modern right-wing extremist... Um just like the the antithesis the stereotype of that person and he is absolutely terrifying because he's not you know a, a he's not like a backwoods yokel of some sort they could have totally made the 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 Bursell family a bunch of backwoods hicks and really made them cartoonish uh would have been easy to do and kind of make fun of them with the way they look or whatever carpenter doesn't go for any of that these are believable um, right-wing extremists, people that you see on the street, people that you might talk to at your job, people that are, you know, um, part of our society that have, you know, these extreme views about issues like abortion and, and uh, well, especially with the next episode we're going to talk about, but like, you know, women's issues in general. Um, I think Ron Perlman was fantastic in this. In fact, it reminded me of why I, I love him so much after, you know, he's because he's obviously I've, he's been in some stuff I don't care for as much either. But um, after, you know, coming off of it, he was always good in it, but not really being a big fan of Sons of Anarchy. And um, oh, he read, I think he, maybe you recommended it to me, but he read the Strain audiobook, which um, I really didn't care for his performance of that. Um, and I think it hurt the book for me a little bit, (laughs) but no, this, this kind of like brought me back to like, I was it like, I don't know. He's, he's, in my opinion, he was fantastic in this. And I think that he, his monster Dwayne Bursell in this is the real monster of this film. And he, um, just, just kills it. He's terrifying. Well, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the actual plot of this one because it, it also plays on some like you just talked about, he's not your stereotypical yokel. And the setup right. is also very well done where you've got these, you know, the, the episode opens with, with Caitlin walks, who's again, she's like a 15 year old running through the woods and down the road. Um, and she's almost hit by a car by these two employees, uh, a doctor, and I believe a nurse from this, uh, women's clinic. And, because they see she you know fell down they feel obligated to take her back to the clinic and they there's even a line when they get there he says the doctor says to her we can take you somewhere else if you'd like like he's not forcing her in there mm-hmm. which is interesting i caught that this time yep um and they go in just to make sure she's okay that's when perlman shows up outside the gates and he's like my daughter's in there i want her now 
She's 15 years old. And that's where and everyone, you... in the, everyone in the clinic has this, oh, it's Dwayne Bursell's daughter. Like, they all know him and know of him. Because yeah. Of, obviously, there's a history here. But what got me is right there. I'd be like, yeah, um, I, I, I'd want my daughter back, too. Like, she's 15 years old, and I want to know what's going on. And, you know, so, like, you do understand, even if you don't like him, you're like, yeah, he is kind of her parent. And it's not until yeah. they start talking about, like, oh, she's pregnant, she's claiming it just happened, and they suspect, you know, it was something, you know, disgusting and incestuous or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, they suspect, yeah, they suspect he might be involved right. in the pregnancy, so they then they can't. They feel like they can't hand her over to him. Like he is a safety risk, not only to them because he's a violent extremist, yeah. but also to her because he possibly has raped her and impregnated her. But even even so, that he's a violent threat to her. She's running from something. She's scared. Um, I think it's it, I think it's fairly practical, you know, thinking from that point of view. You find somebody who's running away, who's scared, who said you find out she's pregnant. She doesn't want to talk about. She's she seems very confused about how it happened. There's some trauma involved, obviously. Um, yeah. So I do think you see it from both angles. It's it's a, it's it's a smart piece. You, it you is. can relate. You can relate to you know, as a parent, how somebody is feeling. But I don't know. Bursell never presents himself as like a loving, caring parent. It's more like a guy that came to claim his property. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm not saying I agree with them, but I I like that they they do show that other. They make you think. Carpenter yeah. makes you think <laughs> this, with this one. This one bit. makes you think, yeah, a lot. You know, and it, uh, and then you find out that, yes, yeah, she's been impregnated, but it's not by him. It's by some demonic force that everybody, Perlman and his family, seem to think was God. Yeah, so, because it's been speaking to Dwayne. Right. So it kind of brings up to like, save uh, the baby, keep the baby alive. For all of these religious fundamentalists, what if you're right? But you're totally wrong on who's talking to you. Yeah. That's the creepy thing to me. That's the, the really scary part of this is not literally like what if you're, you know, the the spirits that are talking to you. But just what if your values, the things that you hold so dear, what if you're right, but for the totally wrong reasons? It's just, yeah. it's definitely a, a, a it's, it is a gory one, and it is full <laughs> of homages to Carpenter's other films. Yes. I noticed uh, a, a good por- a good amount of those, and even mentioned that there's a lot of Easter eggs. And But I, I did want to talk about it, maybe something to get to a little later, but we'll bring it up now, because uh, you mentioned how gory it is, and it is uncharacteristic uncharacteristically gory for even John Carpenter's stuff. Yeah. I think the only thing that compares in his entire filmography is probably The Thing. But The Thing is more creature effects, even though they're gross at times. Um, this one is just... Uh, certainly goes for the gross thing, including, you know, um, Perlman using a suction machine to execute an, a, a, a quote-unquote abortion doctor, doctor he, he, he sees as a you know, murderer of babies or whatever, his uh, twisted view of the whole thing. Um, but, yeah, murders him with a suction machine by, I don't know, cutting into him and sucking his guts out through it, and it's pretty pretty graphically gross. Um, seems uncharacteristic for Carpenter, but I feel like 
that was a little bit of um you know from a production standpoint of masters of horror i think everybody was given a little like nudge nudge to get some gross in there uh to keep the horror fans happy um especially in a in a piece that's more of a political think piece like this one is um as well as the next one we're going to talk about um i think they, they did have a little bit of a nudge nudge get the you know up the ante for the violence and uh or for sorry not necessarily violence but gore this one certainly has a lot of violence too but um but yeah well, so and, yeah a lot of those... it's probably the goriest thing that i've seen that carpenter's yeah, directed i i would agree um aside from the thing which does have some some gore but not like this um yeah but i wouldn't say this is overly gory it's just more for more than he usually does and yeah. yeah, a lot of Easter eggs. I caught references to Assault on Precinct 13 and The Thing and Halloween and a number of other <laughs> films in Carpenter's repertoire. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you are a fan of his films, it's fun to watch or to see those little things in, in the background. If you are not, you don't need to have... You, there's no reason you need to have seen anything. It's not a universe-type thing. Like, you know, they'll just pass by and... Yeah, you don't have to have an understanding to get it. Yeah, I mean, and again, I was just going back to Perlman's performance in it. I, I, I do think he's good in this. He's not bad, but I just there's a couple of parts where he feels, I don't know, maybe they just picked the wrong cut or something when they were hmm. editing it together. There were just a few moments that seem stilted, but really overall, a, a really terrifying story. Um, yeah. And I feel like the entire film is structurally kind of an homage to Assault on Precinct 13. Yes, I think so too. Like, even just the, the frantic pace of everything and the way it just kind of takes off from the get-go just reminded me of that movie a lot. Um, I do feel like halfway through this film, um, it does some things, and these were issues I had with it the first time that I, that I re- that really got hung up on it the first time I saw it, that I'm... I'm, I'm a little more comfortable with now or for some reason i'm I, I saw what they were doing um about halfway through i feel like it starts to play a little bit it never fully plays devil's advocate to both sides of this issue it certainly is coming at it from a certain political or a certain point of view I, i'm not even going to put the word political on it um even though it unfortunately is but uh, it certainly i think has a very pro-choice message to this film so if that's not your thing like this is you're probably not going to enjoy how this whole thing plays out and what it's saying uh but i do feel like it plays a little bit of devil's advocate to both sides of the argument because it kind of throws this curveball in uh with it being first of all a child of rape second of all not just any rape but a rape of a demon and she's impregnated with a monster um that you know literally turns into the creature from the thing for a minute and runs off and like (laughs) but uh then said real father shows up to try and rescue the baby real father being a you know large demon demonic monster which is awesome by the way the monster suit in this thing yeah is uh fantastic it's a good old-fashioned like guy in a suit creature but it looks great um yeah performed by Derek mirrors too yeah, I saw that. Just I actually just saw that on the Wikipedia page as I, I was opening it up today, so um, didn't catch his name in the credits. But the um, 
Yeah, so I think it bothered me last time around. Like, I just really wanted it to be a, you know, a hit piece, essentially, or something that just, like, really, like, pounded those pro-choice arguments home. And, you know, because somewhere where, you know, where my kind of take on the whole issue is. Um, and I thought it was a little soft on that and that it gave a little bit too much to, like, the other side. And, and now I think I this time I saw it and I, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I feel like it didn't really do that it wasn't as devil's advocate as he i thought it was um especially since i think ultimately don't we have to say at the end of this thing because uh they do end up eliminating the demon demonic baby the spawn um and the demon you know kind of walks off with the the um you know the corpse of the his his demonic child or whatever and I guess what the last line of the film. So, so the girl that gave birth to this thing um, says that God's will is done. So this baby was aborted. Um, abusive, rapey father is you know doesn't get his spawn and whatever and into the world, and God's will is done. So we're we're literally saying at the end of this thing that God is pro-choice, right? That's that's where we went with this whole movie. And when I finally like got that this time around. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah. Whatever I thought the last time, I was totally just not getting it, I think. <laughs> um, it is it is exactly what I wanted it to be, and I don't know. It just, it just worked so much better, and I just really liked the... I really liked the Purcell family. Okay, no, I really hated them, but they were so effective that I really like thought yeah. it was... Just because they're so damn believable. They just seem like, and I hope I'm... You know, nah, never mind. I don't. I don't really care if I'm alienating. If that that is, turn it off now. So, <laughs> but I feel like they they really, really look like the wacky extreme pro-lifers that would do this kind of shit. Like they're just the right people, and because they're they're so like believably characterized. So I don't know. I'm well. I mean, there's a little. That's what. There's a little bit of a gimmick there, but it's effective where, you know, his sons are, you know, some of them are in their 20s, but all of his kids still call him daddy. Yep. You know, this this kind of infantile thing. Um, yeah, I, I agree with, with all the points above. I think this one is incredibly effective, and I, I think the, the more subtle message was lost on me, uh, or at least not didn't have an impactful event though it really should because it's it, it is quite powerful um and i it, it's kind of odd because carpenter usually doesn't go this route with with the commentary kind of a thing not really not blatantly i, I think there's a lot of politics in his films and i think you can see this is probably the most straightforward i would say this and they live I was going to say, They Live's another one. I think Escape from New York's chock full of politic, political stuff. Um, not, I mean, it's, again, nothing Nothing is, is on the nose. This is very on the nose. Like, here's what I think. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but uh, he also didn't write this. Um, this is, again, written by, I believe, the same two guys who wrote Cigarette Burns uh, the, for the first season, but Drew McWeeny and Scott Swan. At least one of the two is the same. Um so yeah, I mean, let's. I guess let's not say that that's one hundred percent coming from John Carpenter, but yeah. I do think that if he was not on board with what this film was saying, he probably wouldn't have directed it. So true. 
Um, but yeah, it, it and not to go off on a tangent about an unrelated or totally different film, but one that I feel almost is like a a sister piece to this one, though a little bit late, is Kevin Smith's Red State. Mm. Which still have not seen that uh, one. That one deals yeah. with a lot of the same themes, you know, like taking Christian fundamentalism uh, type activism movements from America and turning them into the the backbone of a horror film. Mm. Um, you know, in this case, it's the anti-abortion crew. In, in Red State, it's more mocking the Westboro Baptist Church, not mocking, but emulating Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah. Um, and I think both of them are are great examples of horror or genre directors using horror as a genre to show that the the worst monsters are human yeah you know and and not uh not just creatures because technically the demon father in this one i mean yeah he kills a bunch of people but they're trying to kill his child and he yeah. takes his. I mean, he is he is a rapist from the get go. He is a rapist from the get go, so he's not like a good sympathetic <laughs> character, but right. he's he's doing what he's caring about his offspring the same way that Ron Perlman is. So, yeah, that's, their property. Their, yeah, their property. Their, yeah. So, if you um, if you had to give this one a grade, or if you have any final thoughts, though, what do you think? Um. One quick final thought. I think Cody Carpenter's music's much better in this. It's more it's more like his own thing and not just like trying to be dad, but um, he did, did the score again, so John Carpenter's son. And uh, did, did a good job with this one. I feel like it's, it, it's, it's a little reminiscent of Assault on Precinct 13, but not in a like way that he's like aping the John Carpenter sound. I think the score's very much his own thing. It's cool. So um, an improvement there because I kind of ripped into him last week and I felt I felt bad about it because I think he's a talented dude and I love the music they do together and you know John Carpenter's whole band and stuff I'm really into it so um felt a little bad for the criticism but I think he kind of definitely landed it this time around so grade wise I I don't know I was I was so pleasantly surprised by this because to tell you the truth I didn't like it much when I saw it in 2006 I thought it was disappointing and I have it was like, I don't know, seeing it with a new, like, older, you know, new set of eyes. I really think it was good. Um, I found it uncomfortable and, like, terrifying to a point where I, this was actually an anxiety-producing, um, you know, thing to sit through. And not like, not to a point where I was like, I don't want to watch this, but it, but it was effective. Like, it worked. I think it did exactly what it was intended to do. I thought the cast was extremely good. I think we disagree on this, but I think Ron. This was a, a favorite performance of Ron Perlman's because I the guy just makes my skin crawl in this, and I hate him. And I think that's exactly what I was supposed to feel. So I mm-hmm. think good job on, <laughs> you know, Ron Perlman. I think this is a solid episode. Uh, this perhaps, and not to show my hand, but might be my favorite of the four that we revisited. Uh, I'm gonna give this one a B plus. So awesome. It's not. Um... I, I'm going to echo most of those things. This one, I when I first saw it, when it came out in 2006, I mean, I liked it because it's Carpenter and it's Ron Perlman. And it's edgy, but I don't think I realized how edgy it was or how poignant it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were definitely some things that were missed by me. Um, and I think reviewing this one, yeah, this is really... This is a, a, a bit of a... I, I agree. There's a flip flop. I liked Cigarette Burns more when it first came out than this one, and 
it's the other way around. This one feels a little more like it's in Carpenter's repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ron Perlman performance in it, I, I, again, I do think it's very, very good and among his best. But there were some. There's a couple of lines that felt stilted, and I really wonder if that isn't more of just an editing. You know, how many times did t- they TV budget? thing too like they don't get to do the amount of takes and (laughs) or even if there were like a couple of takes but maybe they just picked the one that wasn't really the best fit uh but i'm willing to give that one a a, a pass because this one overall is really good and it's better we're going to talk about another masters of horror episode from season two but really i found this one these two to the reason i think we picked these two is they're really kind of among the best ones of season two yeah. Uh, so with that one, I'm actually going to give this one a B, like a solid B. I, I think overall, it's it's a really pretty pretty high up there top class episode, with only a few yeah. minor minor things in it, but um, definitely scarier now than it was in 2006, and that's scary in and in and of itself. Yeah, it it really is, and it is a perfect thing for our podcast because it is the one of those uh i mean not rare occurrences i guess it's happened more times than not but where i revisit something that i didn't think that i liked a whole lot and turns out i i really really liked it even more so than john carpenter's other one which i thought i liked more so it's funny how age and you know life and experience will change things for you especially art and things that you see um agreed so yeah interesting i i enjoyed rewatching it and i'm glad that i i actually like have like some some peace about it like i'm glad i really like this now because i i didn't in fact i like i i wouldn't say i necessarily hated it but i didn't like it much at all when i first saw it so i'm glad i got a chance to revisit that one so what did you pick for this week well, I picked one that stuck with me from the get-go uh, when I saw it originally in 2006 or whenever it would have been when I... I think for season two that I actually did have access to Showtime and I watched some of these for... Or I had access to getting them on the internet by that point. Not sure. Not that I would ever do that, but... Um, so, <laughs> But... Uh, I think I watched them more as they concurrently as they were coming out. I didn't like collect the I did collect the DVDs eventually, but I wasn't waiting for the DVD release to see them. Um, this one stuck with me. Uh, probably was my initially my favorite of the um, second season. I think it's been so long since I've seen them. Now it's hard to remember. It's certainly one that I could remember distinctly. Um, years later and that is joe dante's short film the screwfly solution in the garden man lived in a state of innocence and bliss and woman arrived temptress and wrecked god's plan as of this afternoon we have 1100 homicides all of them women male sexual urges are very closely linked with aggression now somehow someone has figured out a way to erase the distinction this is a concerted attempt to exterminate the human race bioterror we have to begin the immediate evacuation of the female population 
Now, everyone, please, stay in your seats. I need everyone to remain calm. get you a quick synopsis of that 1977 science fiction short story strange virus renders the entire male population into homicidal maniacs who end up wiping out all females leaving a woman and her daughter fend for themselves uh, another short one a deadly virus infects men across the country and it could mean the very end of mankind since it causes men to kill every woman they see so right away you can tell that this one certainly has a lot of like political um kind of ramifications to it as well um it's i think for what i remember watching it back when i first originally saw it is i'm not sure i'd ever seen anything it's got that kind of like post-apocalyptic doesn't quite ever hit the, the the zombie movie trope but mm -mm. certainly an end of the world type situation so you have a virus uh, that is released um, potentially using research that was developed by the two main characters played by Jason Priestley and Elliot Gould um, that causes the male of the human species to become aggressive when feeling any sort of sexual urge or arousal to the point of, of murder. And uh, instead of acting on it, they're, you know... Um, like sexual urges they instead you know eliminate the the whoever the the person that uh is causing that to happen i i it is you know 90 it is mostly pointed at women so the women are kind of wiped out in the world um and uh however i will say that i didn't remember that according to um you know some of elliot gould's characters comments in their uh that it actually the rage and the murder instinct would be pointed at anybody who somebody was being sexually attracted to because he does make a comment that you know um he's not a danger to the kind of people he's attracted to because most young men are stronger than him so um so it's not a just women thing it is lashing out it, it it's basically a commentary on on is it a commentary well, i guess i'll ask your opinion on this do you think this is a commentary more on um male-female relations or more on male sexuality in a lot of ways and kind of it's it's elements that the way it relates to like rage and um just not being comfortable with uh i don't know what do you think of the i, <laughs> I make of this whole thing? i interpreted this as really being a metaphor and like a parable about the way men violently view women in regards to sexual attraction because Elliot Gould's character who is openly gay is unaffected by it well yep. I should I should add a caveat he to did, that he did admit to getting the chemical castration which may have had a role in that mm -hmm. um, 
so perhaps that is more ambiguous than I would like to admit. Yeah. But it does seem to show like the the inherent aggressiveness in male response to sexual attraction. It seems targeted at that. Yeah. That's how I And I it. think that's what I was getting at. I wasn't finding the right words, but like yeah, the kind of violent and uh dominant aggressive nature of of male sexuality but also like just machismo and kind of the way that pe- male, men treat women and and ultimately other men um in general like i don't know anyway it, it's it's a very political and very effective piece and it's very scary because i, I think the the thing and we're going to come back to a lot of that same stuff i was saying about pro-life um or the things that are scariest about this are the the behaviors that you recognize from yeah. people that you have observed in, you know, in real life, unfortunately, because we've all seen it. And from it, it obviously it goes goes to the extreme because these people are literally murdering um, their wives and then the women around them, anybody that they, you know, feel any sort of sexual attraction to. It's um, Joe Dante, I think, was the only filmmaker uh that went two for two with making a very like divisive and political piece for masters of horror. He did one did homecoming, like we talked yeah. about for the first uh, season and screw fly solution for the second. Um, both of those pieces out of those two pieces, this one again, uh, we, we've talked a little bit about when we were talking about cigarette burns. So that's very uncharacteristic of Carpenter. I feel like this is uncharacteristic in a good way, it's a very effective piece, but it's uncharacteristic of Joe Dante's filmography. That is not always, but generally a little bit more lighthearted and mainstream out of any yeah. of these. Now, I wouldn't call the Howling lighthearted or mainstream, but um, there there is a lighthearted mainstream element to it. There's a ton of tongue-in-cheek Easter eggs. Yeah. Um, when you're watching the Howling, which I did just rewatch it recently, you know you're you know what you're watching. You know you're watching right. a, you know, Saturday movie matinee type horror film. It's just very well made, but it's it's got the elements and it's it's got the, the tongue in cheek aspects to it. It's just a little it plays itself a little more serious. Um, right. which is also part of its its, you know, emulation. This this one, yeah, is definitely the first Dante property I can think of that really just sticks it out there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also very dark. It's very, um, it's never funny. Like maybe, I mean, there's some line here and there, but it, it never like goes to play this as a silly, um, farcical situation. This is played, you know, very real, very dark, um, very scary. It also compared to a lot of other um, Masters of Horror episodes. I feel like narratively, this is very, again, very well paced, but very well put together. But it's also a very worldly. Um, I mean, just the nature of the story is taking place all over the world. It's a viral infection. It's affecting everybody. But I, I think he does a really good job of making this feel. And, you know, he's working on the same budget that all these other filmmakers are working on. But making this feel like a big world crisis. And it's it's very well put together. It's very well thought out. And things play out, you know. Um, it's an entertaining piece. It goes by very quickly. I feel like both of the ones we watched this time around were, were paced excellently and yeah. just ed- edge of your seat kind of stuff both of them there was not a single i think i made the comment last week that you know even those those both of these pieces were good and i enjoyed them even in an hour they felt a little too long 
that is not the case with either of the ones we watched this week. Right. They were both perfectly, you know, in fact, I think I, we were talking earlier before we started recording. I think the Screwfly Solution could have actually gone a little longer. This would have made pro- perhaps an even better feature film because you could have, you know, do did a deeper dive into some of what was going on and kind of the development, especially over the latter parts of the crisis. Um, Cause we kind of go from, Hey, it's happening to, Hey, all the women in the world are gone and they're running and hiding and um, pretty quickly. But yeah, I feel like we could have spent a little more time with the characters. I, I think it would have needed a, um, a different resolution at the end. If you yeah, wanted to make maybe. it a feature, because I think making that a feature and that's the ending is going to be pretty, poorly received um it's it's essentially <laughs> yeah. gonna be oh watch the the two-hour movie of how bad it, it is <laughs> hey women you think <laughs> it's bad now here's worse um and yeah and it, then yeah i think with no don't give, don't give them any hope at the end no hope at the end <laughs> yeah this one yeah. this one ends on a bleak note yeah a really bleak note um and and there is a a big catch aha moment at the end um yep which i well, guess from if we're talking about it, we can spoil it, right? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. That this is uh, the this virus type behavior, which has also manifested itself into the form of religious fundamentalism, um, is actually all orchestrated by extraterrestrials. This is their way of wiping out the human population. Get all the ki- get all the males to kill females, mm-hmm. and then get all the males to kill the kids, and then we just got to deal mm-hmm. with them. Males will die out. Yeah, and they'll die out quickly, especially if they're violent and they don't have any families or, you know, women around anymore. How long mm-hmm. till they turn on each other? I think is the idea. But yeah. um the the piece, the screw fly solution is named after um and I probably should have looked up the details of the actual experiment, but um a a real life, I believe, um situation where the population of a species of insect called a screw fly was genetically altered to do almost exactly this it taught it basically taught the males to i don't know if it was murder in that case or like kill but but castrated the males like essentially like they stopped having any interest in reproducing yeah. or um, just made them sterile and as a result yeah. it it decimated their population. Decimated their population. Yeah. So it was, you know, and it, it it saved crops and livestock. And I, I think they're they're boring flies or something, aren't they? Like they dig into animals. Yeah, they and were causing ridiculous like, amounts of infection in yeah. in animals, both wild and livestock. And again, it wasn't that like the screw fly was driven to extinction. It was that it was able to, a way to control mass control the population locally, since these are a pretty cosmopolitan type of insect i mean they're all over central and south america um Mm -hmm. it was a way of saying like okay well around here where your nests are no (laughs) we don't want you here so it was different than just spraying a pesticide to kill everything this was this is the example of how they make things that are very specific to a certain plant or animal um but it does bring up questions and ramifications about controlling the world right controlling nature And then the big stick at the end is, and what if someone's controlling you? Yeah. What if somebody tried the same, you know, exact same scenario on human beings? So that makes it an interesting sci-fi piece, I think, yeah. a- a- asking the, that kind of a question. Um, 
and yeah, so so there is like a little bit of a it, it it wasn't my favorite moment of this, but I also think it's inconsequential to what's really scary about all of this, like the whole like oh it was aliens messing with you know it's a higher form of you know life messing with human beings and clearing our species from the planet. Um, I think that does come as kind of a, almost a side note to what's really scary about this piece and really what's scary about this piece is the like i want to say like the i think i already did say it but the familiarity of some of the behaviors these angry like macho like men it's 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 oh, so yeah. familiar to they me were that just it's uncomfortable. Missing, the whole, they were missing the tiki torches that was it yeah well the whole like sons of adam idea like the religious fervor that catches all like in the early stages of this the the, the men's original reaction is to have this like you know kind of back to religion and like extremist again it, it's funny both these pieces deal with extremist religion but uh they form a you know group called the it's the sons of adam right in this is that the yeah yeah and uh basically eventually become a lynch mob and destroy you know women i guess <laughs> but and then just I guess what else is scary is just the the violence perpetuated towards women is um, it's exaggerated here, but I think it's also just pointing out like throughout history like this is this is the way that women are often treated as sec- as sexual objects and and violently um, dealt with, especially in cases where you know sexual advances are not reciprocated or. Um, I don't know, but it, it's terrifying. I think just, just men become monsters in this thing. And it, it, not in a way that I think a lot of people's reactions to this piece didn't. And I recommend you never go read like a comment section about this piece. <laughs> but, oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it just their, their reaction is that it's a it's finger pointing at men for being monsters or men being evil. And it's like, no, not not exactly. But it certainly is calling out behaviors. And. I guess that, that that's the thing that's so terrifying about it is it just we've all seen these behaviors from people. It doesn't take the screw fly solution for these things to be like a real a real deal. I mean, not obviously. I, I don't think it's accusing everybody of being this way, but um, I don't know. It 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 sure is it sure is terrifying. And yet the latter half of the movie has you know the mother and daughter of the main character played by Jason Priestley. Um, kind of on the run, and and we're not sure that they're really the last women in the world. We have no way of knowing that, but we know that it's gotten dire, like to the point of you know where they're hiding out in the woods at, at a cabin initially, um, and then eventually you know when after after Amy the daughter is gone, um, she's with uh, oh I don't remember is it Barney is Elliot Gould's yeah, character Barney um, yeah. She's with him for a while, and they're literally camping in in the wilderness, and that's the only place they can stay safe, and they have to kind of stay off the grid. Um, and you know, he Barney's of the belief that that she is the last woman in the world. Like I said, we're not sure that's that can be true, but um, yeah, I get one thing I wanted to talk about the the most disturbing moment in this film to me and there are a lot of them like almost the entire thing is just a series of disturbing moments but the thing that really got me is jason Priestley's character in this movie seems like it's a fairly good performance from him yeah um 
he seems like the guy that's got it all together and it's it was one thing to like have him fall victim like i i kind of saw that coming and even he did as a character he warned his wife like if i show yeah, up right i'm not going to be me anymore you yeah know? He's, he, you need and, to shoot uh, i think the thing that really really bugged me and hit it home and it did not bug me to the point like i didn't like it narratively but it, it just really disturbed me and was the the fact that his and maybe i'm overthinking this but what elicited his violent his violent response when he confronted them in the cabin was being close to his daughter and when i'm thinking about how the uh um the virus works just was a totally thing that I didn't. I don't think I caught the first time, and I just went, "Ugh!" Like, really? Like that? That I thought that character was even before the virus thing. Like, that's got to be something in his brain that is having that kind of sexual reaction to. And it's like, oh man, that's just <laughs> um, uh, not. Yeah, that that part stands out for sure. Yeah, I oh. and, and then Joe Dante like he he made a conscious choice. I feel like to not show the murder after that because I feel like that was bad and that was just like uh, yeah yeah. Anyway, I I agree on 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 all that. Yeah, it, it seems like a conscious choice not to show what's actually happening there. But um, the fact that they have that very brief moment where his wife is able to get through to him and be like, hey you've been affected and he you know he throws his daughter out of the way Mm -hmm. i think that shows that the the virus is it's not clear and i i think this is part of the the storytelling in in the show or in the episode film whatever uh that is a flaw is that 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 should have been that should not have been ambiguous yeah. Um, and I think it was, and I don't think it was intentional. It really did feel to me like, as they did do a big thing, like you threw her. So clearly, no, you're not like that about her. There's something about the virus that makes you like. Because think about it. Yeah. You and I are, you know, we could be around women, and there are, are males could be around uh, female animals, and there's a pheromone, and it has a chemical reaction. But we, as a species, are like. Uh, ignore that chemical reaction it's your child you know it's your sister it's your mother or whatever that we are like no we don't go there um and you don't feel that nobody you're not supposed to feel that arousal and i don't think that he was so that's why i think it was more of like this is the virus doing it because Mm -hmm. they made the point to throw i just wish he would not have been that ambiguous yeah yeah i I don't know. Like I, it, maybe it's me being a stickler for the rules that the you know the, the film set up for itself. And it, but I feel like like if you, you once you go to that moment, it kind of I feel like being that it was explained to me earlier how the whole thing works, I feel like it's kind of that's got to be it. But you're right. Like the virus, we don't we weren't told that it doesn't affect ever. I don't know everything. Um, well, because I mean. Let's talk a little bit about what happens at the very end of the film. You find out that the virus has now shifted mm-hmm. from women to children. And that wouldn't have been arousal. That yeah. would have been something else. Absolutely. So I really think they're, yeah, this virus is more sophisticated. It's it's if you are attracted to women, 
you will be affected if you're around women, which is why it, perhaps it didn't do anything with Elliot Gould because, you know, is it because he is he's openly gay or is it because he's taken the shot? Um, yeah. and, and to be fair, you know, this is, to be fair, um, this is based on a short story of the same name by Alice Sheldon, also known Rakuna Sheldon or James Triptree Jr., whichever pseudonym you want to go with. Um, mm-hmm. Screwfly Solution is based on a short story. I have not read that short story. It's on my reading list. Um, has been for a while, so long that I forgot it's on my reading list. And, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I wonder if those are, are more uh, clearly resolved in the story. Yeah, could be. So, but I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts or grades for Screwfly Solution? Um... I don't think I we talked about the aliens at the end and I do feel like this this just as a final thought and I'll roll into the grade um I think this one falls apart a little bit at the end it's it's generally really good and it's it's very effective when it's when it's scary um when it goes full, you know into the kind of like survivalist portion of the film at the end and and when they do do reveal that it's aliens I did I didn't love the CG for the alien creatures in this um, and it just, it doesn't feel like it doesn't hang together or have the suspense of the first, you know, three quarters of the the film or even more than that. Actually, it's really only the last like 10 minutes that we're talking about. Um, but the last, like the last note that it leaves on is just so appropriate. It's, I mean, it's nihilistic and just devastating, but it's, it's very appropriate for the piece. And I think it kind of brings it back home. So it kind of saves it at the end there. I think if it, I actually think it was a perfect ending for this piece. Like, I think a lot of people didn't like it. Um, I, I've no, I've, I've read some, some feedback about people just really not caring for the ending because it just kind of leaves everything there. Like, well, human race is fucked. The end. <laughs> like, mm. um, yeah, just because of some tampering. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, so grade-wise, I think this is just a highly effective drama. It has a lot to say about, you know, human behavior. Uh, the way that women are treated as kind of sexual objects, especially um, it, when it comes to like viol- the violence perpetrated uh, towards women uh, on a, on a, I don't want to say on a sexual level, but but because of that, you know, sexual dynamic. Um, I don't think this one aged as well as pro life, not quite, but it's still got a lot of like good. Um, good stuff going on or like it, it's bringing it's got a lot to think about and it leaves you with a lot of uh discussion points i guess about you know society the way we treat people the way women are treated um and generally it's a it's a really engrossing well-paced good movie with decent performances and uh i think the nihilistic ending like i said is like one of the bleakest places we that i've ever left like even in a post-apocalyptic type movies like it just kind of leaves you there at the end, and that's you know, that's it. No, there's not really any hope of moving forward from that point. Um, yeah. So anyway, I think I'd go to go with a B minus on this one. I still really enjoyed it, and I think it is it's it's very poignant and definitely worth a watch. Again, it, I feel like for the most part, it's an edge of your seat kind of movie. It's well paced and uh, very disturbing. Um, this, I have to admit, this is probably my favorite episode of season two. 
It's the only one that I actually own on DVD still, and it's one that I do revisit somewhat frequently. And I think it's because the first time I saw it, the alien reveal at the end really did blow me away. And I didn't mind the effects because, honestly, I didn't think the CGI looked that bad, personally. I just thought it, yeah. it showed how weird and bizarre these versions of entities are um, beyond anything we can comprehend. Uh, it, it just, it, it was a, a looking glass, you know, back into your face about the theme that keeps getting brought up in this one, in this uh, short, is the, the concept that, you know, we try to control the earth to get rid of the pests while nature views us as the pest. And, well, what's nature? Well, nature could be an incredibly advanced civilization. And this is the barbaric, monstrous, primitive way they have found to get rid of you. Like getting males to become aggressive at females. You're right, Billy. The original Screwfly experiments, it was simply just making them sterile. Mm -hmm. Right? But, yeah, well, what if it was... You know, if you look at women and you're attracted to women, you get violently angry. And then you but it's enough for your brain to start comprehending some sense false sense of logic where you're developing like religious sects based on it and so on. So I really liked how complex this one got. Um it left me wondering more about this and kind of it this episode always felt to me like if you were a kid walking into the middle, you know, into a room where a bunch of adults were talking and you heard the snippet of something that sounded absolutely terrifying, but you knew there was more to that story, but you didn't really know even where to look, that's this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Because it, it, it's disturbing, but there's so many unanswered questions. I guess I can see how that would be frustrating, but it's also terrifying. So I'm yeah. actually going to give this one an A-. minus. Um, this one still holds up for me. It still holds up as, and I think that the extraterrestrial thing does it, but as something like, there's always something bigger than you. There's always something bigger than these issues. You know, it just kind of, mm -hmm. it, I don't know. It got very, always a bigger fish. There's always <laughs> a bigger fish. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, I think it was also like, this one really hit home. For me, uh, well, just to kind of topically, because we just finished watching the first season of The Handmaid's Tale, which I think I mentioned oh, yeah. off air. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's like right it right in there with the uh, you know topically with a lot of stuff that you know that's obviously discussing as well. So mm, absolutely. Um, so yeah, but yeah. So overall, do you feel like in the last two episodes? the four episodes of Masters of Horror that we reviewed, the two from season one, the two from season two, are adequate representations that kind of reflect the review of the seasons as a whole? Or did we pick like the best um, of the best or worst of the worst or what? I think we picked from among the best, if I'm going back to memory. And I do think what's interesting is is I don't necessarily trust my memory because I, I feel like I've I flip-flopped on some of them a little bit, but I do think we picked good episodes. I think all four of these were, were good episodes of the show. Um, I would like to go on record and say I don't think there are many. There are there are some, but I don't think there are many bad episodes of this show. It's pretty solid all the way through. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, I think our sample is, is good. I do think we, we kind of stuck to like topical um, 
kind of issues-based uh, political even episodes. And I guess last week's weren't really, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, um, yes, I guess. <laughs> so I think it's a good representation of the show. I do think what we didn't really hit was... Um, something that was kind of like old fashioned horror because there are some there's like there's like slashery stuff there's monstery stuff i guess i guess pro-life gets monstery that's uh you get a good good monster in that one but yeah that one's kind of got a little bit of both yeah yeah um so yeah i guess yes <laughs> to answer your question in a really long <laughs> you talked yourself into it um yeah. <laughs> but yeah i i think so I think so too. Maybe not in style. I think if you are, if you're watching, if you're listening to these two episodes or watching those two episodes and thinking, okay, now do I watch the rest of the series? Don't expect this, the tone. We, we may have picked some films that are very close in tone. There are yeah. some bizarrely lighthearted, lighthearted ones, uh, such as family with George Went, um dear woman dear woman <laughs> john landis um, from john landis those are both john landis pieces actually but yeah, yeah that's true they are uh pelts from dario argento mm -hmm. which is very atmospheric um and, and somewhat mystical so yeah there's very very different styles throughout this series um but if you know what's the quality of them i would say that yeah these four are a good representation overall it was a really good show it was. It was a great series, and even um, it bled into the the network TV show Fear itself, which was kind of the unofficial season three of Masters of Horror, and that that is the weaker weakest link. But there's even some good stuff among those. So. Yes, indeed, indeed. So that kind of concludes our two part review of the Masters of Horror series from 2006 and 2007, uh, which was originally on Showtime, and getting a little bit back to form. What do we have coming up next time? Um, we are going to celebrate our 150th episode by watching an old favorite and uh, certainly a cult classic uh, become legend, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, we're actually going to spend a couple weeks. We're going to check out the first Chainsaw Massacre film, the you know stuff of legend, the um, and then uh, kind of compare and contrast it to its very very different in tone sequel, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. Both films directed by Toby Hooper. Uh, so we'll, yeah, the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at those. Uh, past that, we are going to look at The Stand. Speaking of Mick Garris, since we just, uh, Mick Garris, the creator of Masters of Horror, we didn't name drop him this time. I know we talked a little bit about him last week. Um, but we are going to look at Mick Garris's television miniseries of The Stand. So this is not the new CBS uh, all-access version of it, um, but the I want to say the original uh, adaptation of Stephen King's novel, The Stand, which was uh, which aired um, sometime in the 90s. <laughs> I don't have the date right in front of me, but with uh, Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald. And gosh, a lot of people are in that movie, actually. So I'm not going to list them all right now. Mm -hmm. but, um, and then beyond that, we uh, have a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, some Someday down the line, we're going to look at some uh, more Charles Band movies as well, which I'm looking forward to. But stay tuned. Uh, we got a whole lot of uh, good stuff coming your way past episode 150 which i still can't believe we're we're at so yeah so. but we, we also march on towards 200 absolutely and we want to also invite you to share any of your thoughts on the masters of horror series 
uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies as we're going through those and any other listener picks that you may have. Please feel free to share those with us at the Video Junk Air Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Video Junk Pod. Find us on Facebook at the main Video Junk Air Podcast page or the Video Junk Air Podcast group. And also on Pinterest and Instagram. So, I want to thank you once again for listening to the Video Junk Air Podcast. And until next time, this is Joe Peterson. I'm Eric Branson. Have a good evening. You have been listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. You just can't let them go? Go! Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast and remind you to find us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. On Twitter at Video Junk Pod, and on Instagram as Video Junkyard Podcast, all one word. Want to thank you again for listening and keep digging. Who knows what treasures you'll find in the Video Junkyard?